Hi everyone, and welcome to Sustainability Explored, a podcast where every week we interview leading professionals, thought leaders, and overall disruptive minds in the field of sustainability to learn their views on the present, and especially the future of the world through the prism of sustainable development. Today with us, we have Maury Cohen, Professor of Sustainability Studies at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, co-founder and executive board member of the Sustainable Consumption Research and Action Initiative. This is an international knowledge network comprising academics, policymakers, and NGO representatives working at the interface of material consumption, sustainable systems, innovation, and economic transition. His books include The Future of Consumer Society, The Prospects of Sustainability in the New Economy. Another book is Putting Sustainability into Practice, Applications and Advances in Research on Sustainable Consumption. Uh, yet another book is called Innovations in Sustainable Consumption, New Economics, Social Technical Transitions and Social Practices and Exploring Sustainable Consumption, Environmental Policy and the Social Sciences. I uh, will be talking, we will be talking today about environmental and social science, sustainability science and environmental policy. I hope we will learn a lot of interesting things today. So I'm looking forward to this very insightful conversation with Professor Maury Cohen. Not to keep you all wondering for too long, let's dive deep into the sustainable consumption world and the world that is waiting to be discovered. I'm ready to welcome Professor Cohen in a second. Hi, Maury. I'm super happy to welcome you on Sustainability Explored. Thank you so much for joining us today and for agreeing to share your wisdom on the subject of environmental and social policy. But before we dive deep into the subject, I'd like to ask you what brought you into sustainability? Did you have any personal attachment um, since childhood or how did it happen? Uh, it's an interesting um, sort of opportunity to reflect. Um, it wasn't an obvious uh, path that I've taken. I actually started out um, as an undergraduate in university studying business administration and marketing and, um, and then moved to a graduate program um, in urban and regional planning. And my aspiration at the time was to become a New York City real estate developer. Um, but uh, by virtue of um, um, the training and uh, exposure that I had in studying urban and regional planning, my eyes were opened in new ways to um, issues of social justice and, um, um, and environmental policy. Um, I also became quite interested in um, in uh, sort of issues at the intersection between geography, economics, and urban and regional planning, and went on to um, receive a PhD in a field called regional science, um, which is kind of the quantitative tools of doing urban and regional planning. Um, through that, I developed an interest in 
um, what I thought of at the time as sort of peripheral and remote regions of the world. Um, and I uh, wrote a PhD dissertation on the social and economic impacts of the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska. Um, and um, that was a formative um, and important experience in sort of understanding the, the intersection of um, social and environmental policy, technology, science, um, political controversies. Um, and uh, so that was sort of the beginning of the beginning. Right. So, and, and how does your professional life look like now? Now you are a professor at the university, right? That's correct, yes. What are you so, working um, on? How does, it, how, how does it look? So um, I've, um, I've spent the last 20 years, um, I started out as an assistant professor of environmental and sustainability policy um, at the New Jersey Institute of Technology after spending um, several years in the UK. Um, I was invited to join um, a, a new initiative um, when Oxford University was first trying to get itself organized about how it was going to um, take on board um, environmental and sustainability issues in a much more um, substantive way than it previously had been. Um, I was a research fellow at something called the Oxford Center for um, Environment, um, Ethics, and Society. Um, and um, that was sort of an opportunity to do a sort of second PhD on an independent study basis. Right. Um, and it was an exciting and interesting time, especially in Europe, um, uh, sort of new modes of thinking about environmental issues were emerging, climate change was beginning to um, become a, a more um, acknowledged issue. Um, and um, um, it was a formative time for the establishment of the field of environmental social science. Um, so a recognition of the inextricable connections between the biophysical environment and social and political issues. Um, and so I played a a role in the early development of the field of environmental social science as it was coming together during the 1990s. Um, I then came back in due course to the US, um, took up a faculty position at uh, the New Jersey Institute of Technology. And like I said before, I've been here for 20 years and now serve um, in addition as the chair of a department of humanities um, and I'm uh, involved in a variety of other administrative curricular programs having to do with environmental and sustainability issues across the university. I cannot help but think that you were one of the people in the forefront of the sustainability, so to say, revolution. I imagine there was no even such a notion, which is true, by the way, yes, even the, the sustainability as a term only emerged in the 90s, 92, right? A Rio and the Brutland uh, report. Are you happy about how things developed by now? Well, no, you're absolutely right. So 1992 was the, um, 
sort of birth year, so to speak, of, uh, of sustainability. 1992 was the, the Rio Earth Conference, um, or Earth Summit. There was um, um, internationally a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and um, thinking at the time that perhaps um, uh, the planet was going to begin to move in a decidedly different direction. Um, unfortunately, it didn't materialize in quite that way. Um, and uh, so I was fortunately and fortuitously positioned during the early and mid 1990s to, um, to sort of follow up on um, many of the activities that were initially catalyzed um, in Rio. Um, and especially around the issue of sustainable consumption. So there, there's a chapter of Agenda 21, which was the formative document produced in Rio, um, that uh, uh, chapter four of Agenda 21 is devoted to this issue of consumption, um, especially in the affluent countries of the world. Um, and it represented a um, sort of a remarkable moment in um, rather than, 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 than attributing responsibility and blame to countries of the global south um, and to um, the uh, sort of reproductive patterns of, um, um, of, 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 of relatively poorer countries around the world. This was a moment where um, uh, uh, there was a new recognition that not well, that's probably saying it too strong. There was a sort of a, 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 a an initial sense of awareness that um, that the true source of of global environmental problems um, really emanated from the global north, from the richest countries of the world, and in particular, the consumption practices of um, relatively affluent consumers, um, which were the source of demand for um, materials and energy um, utilization, which were at the heart of so many sources of environmental deterioration. I noticed you have published at least three books on sustainable consumption. Yeah, so I, um, again, it was sort of a, a bit of an accident of fortunate timing. Um, again, I was uh, based in the UK during the, uh, the mid-1990s and happened to be the recipient of one of the first um, research grants uh, provided by a national funding council um, for work on um, sustainable consumption. Um, and that eventually led to um, publication of one of the first books um, on the, uh, the topic, um, a book that was, um, that was um, put together with a, a colleague of mine at the time um, named Joseph Murphy. Um, book was called, is called Exploring Sustainable Consumption. Um, and it represented an initial effort to bring together um, uh, sort of thinking about the consumption dimensions of environmental issues that we tend, have tended to think about sources of environmental deterioration and uh, um, whether it's climate change, biodiversity, um, toxicity in the environment, you know, as problems of production, that these are issues that um, technical specialists in chemical engineering or in um, um, 
in, in process engineering, industrial engineering are supposed to um, quote unquote solve, you know, through the utilization of technological means and innovation, um, rather than looking at um, the consumption side um, and what's spurring the, um, the utilization of uh, and the demand for um, highly consumptive resource, resource intensive lifestyles. So that's sort of the issue that I've been involved in trying to open up and to understand and to hopefully begin to devise some useful interventions. Yeah, I, I am thinking now about supply and demand and what generates what really. Because when we, when we are talking about sustainable consumption, I'm thinking, oh, it's, you know, the blame is on the consumers. Why am I buying if I am not buying sustainably or over the limits of what I need? But at the same time, those who produce the stuff that we don't need, and they are responsible as well. What would be your, I don't know, top five things that you could share from that research, I don't know, top five things of how to become a sustainable consumer, where to look, what to do. Yeah, so that's an excellent, really excellent question. So thank you for that. And um, um, there is a powerful tendency, um, you know, to attribute blame and responsibility to individual consumers and to um, um, suggest that um, individual action by individual consumers um, will lead to um, uh, necessary processes of social change. Um, from my perspective, and I think this is an overwhelming finding of the research, um, is that um, these are not individualized and personalized um, issues, that it's, it's the consumption system, um, if you will, um, that's designed purposefully um, by policymakers, by politically and economically influential um, industrial companies, um, by a relentless commitment to economic growth in material terms um, that, um, that creates the conditions of highly consumptive lifestyles. And so um, in the field, we tend to make the distinction between um, weak sustainable consumption and strong sustainable consumption. Um, weak sustainable consumption are the kinds of initiatives that many of us are familiar with about consuming greener or um, um, uh, driving a more fuel efficient car or you know, making relatively modest adjustments um, in our purchasing practices that signal to others that we have some measure of environmental consciousness. Um, and, um, you know, are part of a mentality that suggests that in order to um, lead a slightly different life, um, one first has to buy a lot of new stuff. <laughs> um, so whether it's the new car or um, an energy efficient house or um, uh, 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 
guilty as charged. I just oh. bought a new jogging leggings today because I'm planning to jog. Yeah, well, that's so. Uh, my, my, you asked me about five points. So, uh, um, you know, I, I want certainly one of them would be to be very skeptical of of recommendations that one first has to to buy new things in order to adopt a slightly different lifestyle. Um, and um, um, there's also a tremendous amount of, of emphasis on environmental improvement through emphasis on efficiency. And I like to tell my students that um, sustainability really has two, two sides of the same coin. Um, one side is efficient, efficiency, and we certainly do need to um, focus um, importantly on productivity and how we utilize resources and um, and, and to do so with uh, you know, higher levels of, um, of efficiency. But on the other hand, there's also the issue of sufficiency. Um, and that um, issue is, is very rarely um, incorporated into current considerations. I was just listening uh, earlier today to um, the, uh, the climate summit that President Biden has, has organized. And, heads of state of uh, quite a number of countries were speaking, participating. Um, and from, for all of them, um, the, the, the intended pathway to reducing CO2 emissions and getting control of the climate change problem, you know, is all focused on technology and technology improvement and more efficient technology. Um, you know, we still, um, so many years after Rio, have such a hard time talking about the absolute necessity of lifestyles um, and how we begin to reorient national and global economies in ways that promote and facilitate um, good lives, flourishing lives, lives that um, enable um, high levels of well-being without necessarily encouraging ever greater volumes of material and resource consumption. Um, and, um, you know, so we've seen some changes on the margins and we've seen the rise of some interest in sustainable consumption, but, um, you know, in terms of uh, the world of elite policymaking, um, there's still a very, very long way to go. Uh, progress has been decidedly slow and time is short. Um, and, um, you know, it's a timely moment for people to begin to ask themselves as well as to campaign for social and political changes that are consistent with a future that does not continue to perpetuate this notion that the good life is inherently connected to ever greater and larger volumes of material consumption. Yeah. Um, yes, there are people around the world who need to consume more, but there are others around the world who, um, you know, have kind of bought into this myth that um, the bigger house, the better car, um, the more clothes, the bigger closet, um, you know, is, um, is, a, is, a, is a pathway to, to um, to happiness, satisfaction, well-being, prosperity. Um, I think, you know, slowly we're seeing more and more people come to terms with the fact that 
Um, there are other pursuits that are more legitimate satisfiers of um, a life of, of, of well-being and contentment and happiness and satisfaction. We don't have to destroy the planet. And so the fact that we're speaking to each other today on Earth Day um, is uh, uh, um, a timely and, uh, and, um, and, and uh, um, um, great opportunity. It's true, it's true. I was just thinking, you know, you mentioned the overconsumption came from the global north, the US, Canada, Europe as well, a lot. But then the movement of zero waste and the minimalists also emerged in the US as a kind of a reverse movement. Like, guys, you don't need the bigger car and the bigger house. You can be happier with a lot less. Look what you're doing with your life. And that's interesting how uh, it's spiraling probably. First it goes up towards bigger consumption, then it goes down to lesser consumption. And it's still happening in the same medium, in the same kind of environment, culturally with the same people. And I think it's something to think about. You mentioned environmental policy, and I have a, a tricky question. I really don't know the answer. The policy should reflect the present, including the future a little bit. How does I don't even know how to ask the question, to be honest. How does it happen, the writing of the policy, the issuing of the policy? If it, is it first the life pushes you to reflect on paper what has changed? Or first the document is born to address how to do in the future? So, um... Uh, different countries have different, um, what we would think of as national policy styles. Um, uh, countries of Northern Europe uh, have uh, uh, multi-party political coalitions and uh, traditions of, uh, of uh, a certain level of political responsiveness as they emerge out of society. Um, Others um, have traditions and customs and practices that are um, more um, of a top-down variety. Um, in a country like the United States that is large and uh, diverse, um, we have a sort of long-standing idea in political science that, um, that uh, local communities and individual states are sort of laboratories of policy innovation. And that um, ideas sort of start out in, um, in local communities or within individual states. Um, and then over time, um, scale up um, to a national level. Um, and, and that's very much a process that was informed by the way in which environmental issues were taken up by the policy system during the 1970s and into the 1980s to some degree. Um, the problem that we've had sort of since then is that there has been a kind of disconnect between um, um, sort of the pressures from below for um, 
uh, innovation and um, um, policy action um, and, um, and the political system um, that um, wealthy and political powerful, politically powerful institutions and other actors, um, uh, specific regions of the country have exercised um, undue influence uh, on the process. Um, um, and, um, you know, I think that that's been detrimental also to the global system. I mean, one thing that was, um, that, that we heard in the uh, climate summit that began today is a recognition of the importance of U.S. leadership on the global stage and a um, acknowledgement and a, um, um, a satisfaction that the United States is kind of back um, and is, um, is now politically able and interested and has the capacity um, to again lead not only on climate but on a range of other social and environmental issues. Um, and, um, um, but at the same time, you know, we live in a world where economic competitiveness um, is a source of political power. And, um, and the United Nations system remains um, unfortunately weak and, um, and in many cases ineffectual. Um, and, um, you know, as long as, as burning carbon-based fuel is a source of political power and influence and contributes to military budgets and, uh, um, and national prestige, um, it's gonna be very, very difficult to, um, to mobilize a, this, a sufficient amount of political will um, um, in the United States, in China, in India. Um, you know, the reality is that when you begin looking at, at uh, greenhouse gas emissions, it's a relatively small number of countries that's responsible for a disproportionate amount of total releases. Um, and so it's not a question of mobilizing 200 countries around the world. It's a, country, it's a matter of, of getting about a dozen um, to be fully committed. Um, but uh, given the geopolitics of the current day, um, um, it's, uh, it will be an upward battle. And again, time is short. Um, and this idea that we need to, you know, devote time, energy, attention to um, revolutionary new technologies um, before we can take action, you know, is, um, is really not supported by scientific evidence. Um, we can begin to reduce CO2 emissions by upwards of 40% on the basis of off the shelf technology that's available today. Um, so it's really much more a matter of political will um, than it is of, of technological means and scientific capacity. A hundred percent. What would you say is the key to a strong policy? Because if there is any power in the world to address those five to 10 countries responsible for the biggest amounts, amounts of uh, greenhouse gases emissions, what this power should be, should have, it's not one country dictating another, hey, do this, don't do that. What's the premise of the strong policy and really commitment? Well, um, I mean, I may be a bit 
politically naive on this point, but um, you know, um, I sort of subscribe to the idea that the role of governments is to improve people's lives. And that for, at least in um, uh, sort of dominant countries of the West, the prevailing philosophy of the past 40 or 50 years has been that government is incompetent, um, that it's incapable, that government should get out of the way of uh, private interests and, um, and, um, and, 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 and companies. Um, that, um, um, that it's a matter of personal freedom and it's about independence and it's about autonomy um, and that government has no constructive role to play in planning and anticipating the future. Um, and that sort of brought us to the point that we're at today, um, that, um, you know, I think what we see very much in the case of the Biden administration in the United States is um, one would like to hope at least sort of the end of this, what many people refer to as the neoliberal era. Um, where um, government can get things done. It can attract capable, um, efficient and effective people to, to work on public policy and on, um, on, um, on, on in, in processes of civic engagement. Um, I think we're seeing that in a number of other countries around the world um, as well. So, you know, maybe we're turning a new page where the type of, of coordination and planning and facilitation of uh, economic enterprise, of social progress, of creating the conditions for, um, um, you know, not just a small handful of people to experience and, and live lives of just extraordinary affluence, um, but to spread the benefits of social progress um, and economic advancement, um, you know, much more broadly than we've seen um, and create opportunities for really full uh, participation. You know, and I mean that not just in the sense of individual countries, but truly on a global scale. Um, and, um, um, you know, and, um, um, and create conditions that, that actually, um, um, you know, lead to lives of, of, of that, that enable people to flourish in the true sense of the word. You know, not just in the economic and financial sense, but to um, lead lives that are worth living, you know, as opposed to just focusing on economic accumulation on the part of a few. The most important is to be happy. Happy is important, um, but, uh, um, you know, I would, would I like to focus on this, this, this notion of, of flourishing, um, you know, which uh, probably, well, it translates into different language cultures in different ways. Um, but certainly speaking in English as we are today, um, the word flourishing is not something that um, comes off the tongue very easily. It's not a, a word that's in common usage. We, we don't think of, 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 of the conditions of our own lives as um, um, enabling um, opportunities to flourish. Um, you know, we talk about children flourishing, we talk about um, um, that 
aspects of the natural world flourishing and that's that's great but i think we also need to sort of extrapolate those kinds of concepts um, much more widely and much more broadly yeah that's true thriving is a more frequent let's say term that i come across but flourishing flourishing i is something that i do agree with that was a great conversation i personally learned a lot to wrap up this interview, I always ask my guests to provide one piece of advice for the listeners of Sustainability Explored. So what would be yours? So um, I would encourage people not to sort of fall into this, what I would regard as a trap, um, that um, the path to a more sustainable future is paved exclusively with um, scientific and technological innovations. Um, that um, environmental problems, whether climate change or, um, uh, or any number of others, um, these are social problems, they're political problems, they're problems of, of how we've come to, to organize our economies and our industries, and our educational systems and our healthcare systems. And, um, and at root, they really require um, social and political um, solutions. Um, so, um, and that's difficult. It's, it's hard, it's conflictive, it um, requires time, which we don't always have, but um, you know, unless we come up with a, a, a sort of a new social contract um, and a new set of political expectations and responsibilities, um, I'm afraid that all of the investment in um, wondrous and um, innovative technologies is not going to um, uh, be sufficient. Right. Thank you so much. You provided a wealth of wisdom, just as I expected. And uh, it's a special episode, you're right, today on the Earth Day, we're releasing this um, forward-looking interview for the listeners. Thank you so well, much. Delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks for being with us today and always and for listening to this episode. This was episode number 87, season 8 of Sustainability Explored. If you like this episode, found it useful, going to implement any advice given by Professor Maury Cohen, please let me or him know via LinkedIn. We would very much appreciate your feedback and it will most certainly make us very, very happy. Subscribe to this podcast not to miss any new episodes. Uh, if you like the podcast in general, please leave a review, rate, comment on the platform you're listening on. We are available on 77 and even more platforms. So yeah, your review, your comments, your stars will help us become more visible and help people around the world um, to educate themselves on the matters of sustainability. Thank you once again for being with us today, for listening, and until next time, next Thursday. Take care, stay sustainable, and as it's the special Earth Day episode, love Earl Earth today and always. 
Thank you. Bye-bye.